Welcome to HelpCast. I'm your host, Melissa Harris. While COVID-19 has largely been taking the spotlight in healthcare news and awareness this year, suicide is still a largely overlooked and significant public health crisis in America. The World Health Organization reports that in the last 45 years, suicide rates have increased by 60% globally. This makes suicide now one of the world's leading causes of death among those between the ages of 15 and 44. In the United States, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reports that overall, suicide is the 11th leading cause of death for American citizens and is the third leading cause of death for people between the ages of 15 and 24. While these statistics are shockingly high, suicide ideation and attempt rates for transsexual, non-binary, and gender non-conforming individuals are alarmingly higher. The Trevor Project, a nonprofit LGBTQ suicide prevention organization, reported in its 2020 national survey on LGBTQ youth mental health that over half of transgender and non-binary youth seriously considered suicide in the past year. Meanwhile, Trans Lifeline, another nonprofit trans suicide prevention hotline and resource center, reported that 82% of trans people have suicidal ideation and 40% have attempted suicide. For this month, Suicide Prevention Month, we're dedicating an episode of HealthCast to understand why rates of suicidal ideation and attempts are so high across the transgender and non-binary community. We'll also look at how digital services, resources, and communities are helping trans people overcome factors that lead to suicide, and how allies and government agencies can be more supportive of the trans community. To learn more about trans suicide prevention, I spoke with Trans Lifeline Director of Development and Interim Director of Communications, Bree Barnett. Trans Lifeline, as I mentioned before, is the largest direct service provider to trans people in North America. Bree explained the different services that Trans Lifeline provides. We have two program areas. The first is our hotline, which has been running now for around five and a half years. It's the only hotline where all of our operators are trans, so people can reach out and know that they'll reach someone who will understand what they're going through. We also, of course, on our hotline are one of the few hotlines that have a policy against non-consensual active rescue. So that means we don't call the police on our callers unless they ask us to. And this year, we plan on answering nearly 30,000 calls. We also have a micrograms program to recognize that some problems can't be solved just by talking. So we give trans people money to help them legally change their name and gender, as well as giving specialized support for trans people who are imprisoned or detained by ICE or in the immigration process. Combined, our programs serve our mission, which is to connect trans people to the community, to the support, and to the resources they need to survive and thrive. While Trans Lifeline works to support trans and non-binary individuals who are struggling with suicidal thoughts, Bree also explained why suicide rates are so startlingly high among trans people. The answer, as Bree will describe, largely stems from the societal stigma and lack of civil rights protections trans folks face. We know that 82% of trans people have considered suicide at some point in their life. 
We know that 40% report making an attempt at some point during their life, and that compares to 15% of the general population considering it and 5% attempting. So those numbers are alarmingly high. And we have to ask ourselves, why is this? And the answer really is in the material conditions that trans people face. So mental health isn't a personal failing. Sometimes people hurt because they are being hurt. Trans people face inordinate amounts of discrimination in society, lack of access to things like jobs, good paying jobs, housing, health care, education, the things that really form the basis of a life worth living, right? So really, we think the risk factors for trans people that are unique are really the amount of discrimination people are facing. We also know, especially for trans youth, that a big driving factor is how supportive their families are. And so if families are being hostile, the risk factor for suicidal ideation goes way up. But if you have a supportive family, it's really comparable to your cisgender peers. So really, the risk factors we're talking about are societal and being imposed by discrimination, by ignorance, by hate. These statistics and factors that Bree shared are shocking and terrible. Even across the larger LGBTQ community, where gender identity and sexuality are very separate pieces of each person's identity, Bree noted significant differences between transgender and cisgendered gay, lesbian, bisexual, and queer suicide rates. We see very high rates of ideation and attempts among cisgender, lesbian, gay, bisexual, queer people as well. And I think that goes back to the point of social discrimination. Now, it's higher for the trans community because often, for a variety of reasons, one, I'd say the stigma is higher. There is certainly stigma with being a queer cisgender person, but I don't think it's quite as elevated as being trans. Also, depending on the life experiences of that queer person, they might not be as visibly queer all of the time, whereas a trans person could be, and that opens you up for things like street harassment, increased incidents of discrimination, denial of service, and all of those things go in to feel like, you know, the world is too much or that there isn't a lot of hope for the future. So I'd say it's really similar causes, but it's just a little bit higher for the trans community, or not a little bit, substantially higher. And I think that's a reflection of where we are at socially, and also a reflection that, you know, unfortunately, sometimes transphobia also comes from LGBTQ people as well. And, you know, there are just ways that even within that LGBT community, there can be lots of still divisions, even though I think we are strongest when we are united together. And just to reiterate, gender identity and sexuality are very separate elements to one's own identity. Being transgender, being gender nonconforming, non-binary, these are different things than your sexual preference. For example, I identify as a, or I am a non-binary trans woman. I'm also bisexual. I also identify as queer. So those are identities that are, aren't really necessarily related even to my gender, right? They're who I'm attracted to, which is different than who I am. And 
I think that's an important distinction to draw here. And it's important to recognize that trans people aren't just trans people, right? There are gay trans men, there are lesbian trans women, there are bisexual and queer and ace and intersex. And also there are some trans people who identify as heterosexual and that, you know, they say, I'm a man or I'm a woman and I'm attracted to the opposite gender. So really, there's so much diversity within the community. We also, you know, are people of every race, of every religion, of every ethnicity. We've been around for as long as humans have been around. So being trans is just another unique expression of what it means to be human. It's not to be conflated with any of those other identities, which all can be so important to how someone experiences the world and goes through it. Being transgender or non-binary, as Bree said, is only one part of an individual's identity, albeit a very important part, especially given the discrimination and stigma that society places upon those people. That identification has also hurt trans people immensely during COVID-19 where many pre-existing transphobic societal conditions, on top of the economic distress and isolation that COVID has brought to America, are compounding upon the mental health and well-being of trans and non-binary individuals. What we've seen is the severity of our calls has really increased. We've had a 40% increase, and that's growing in the number of crisis calls. We're seeing in a crisis call is a call where someone is really seriously considering ending their own life. So that's pretty alarming. And we really see that COVID is a big driving factor of that, of our crisis calls that we've received since the pandemic began. 42% of those calls explicitly mention or talk about COVID being a contributing factor to their mental health. So I also think it's important to note that when we're thinking about COVID, really, it's not just COVID impacting the trans community. It's the way that COVID exacerbates existing transphobia, the way it really turns up the volume on all the other social discrimination, things like social isolation or being forced to shelter in place with unsupportive family. All of those things that are going to make your mental health worse COVID is really exacerbating. Another big thing we see is unemployment. People are talking about that way more often. We've also, during the peak of the shelter-in-place orders in March and April, we received over 300% more calls of people talking about domestic and intimate partner violence as they were forced to shelter in place with unsupportive loved ones. And so there are many ways that COVID is exacerbating to and contributing to a crisis of trans suicidality. But the good news is also that trans people are really resilient. We have lots of online places where we connect to form community. We form lots of really resilient local communities as well. And so while it's a difficult time for the community, you know, we also are a very strong and and resilient demographic as well. That resiliency has largely come from trans communities online whether in chat rooms, video games, or on Twitch or YouTube. It's a huge marker that virtual platforms are an impactful contribution to trans people's social and mental well-being. They can find validation, understanding of themselves, and other people who can relate to their experiences. There are trans subreddits that are really active, and some people find those really supportive. 
there are trans content creators on platforms like Twitch or YouTube. Sometimes there are entire communities that form around a trans person streaming and there are discord communities and just so many like really localized and specialized places where people are connecting not only on being trans but on what their passions are what their interests are what excites them which can be a really affirming place for people to connect there are also of course you know explicit trans forums places like Susan's Place or others like that. And, you know, I think the user experience there can vary pretty widely because they are such like community led spaces. First, it's really about finding the one that's right for you. For a lot of trans people, although not all of us, a lot of us found out what it meant to be trans through the internet, through some of these communities early on in our transitions. And I think they still can be really powerful places to experiment with your identity. Some trans people I know really strongly identify with having a video game where they could be a character of the opposite gender, being some of the first places they were exploring their gender early on. Just, you know, these virtual spaces where it's a little easier to try on different identities that might be really validating to you. Trans Lifeline itself is also proactive in using digital services to assist trans and non-binary folks. Earlier in the conversation, you may have remembered that Bree mentioned Trans Lifeline's microgrants program. Although the basis of this program is to help trans people to get funding to, say, change their gender on their government-issued IDs, the Lifeline has a massive number of resources on its website to help people find the websites and information that they need to conduct such actions. I think one of the ways we're really proactive about mental health is through our microgrants program, realizing that mental health, again, it's about the material conditions that someone's living in. And so those microgrants can that we give out twice a month, around 42, I believe, a month, are really a way for us to be proactive about mental health and provide resources to the community, in this case, money that can help a trans person legally change their name and gender, which means a proper ID, what's behind an ID. You need your IDs when you get a new job. You need them just to use your credit card at the store. And then if someone realizes you aren't appearing as you do on your ID, that creates the opportunity for them to be rude, to discriminate, to harass you. It means education, student loans. It means the vote. It's just every aspect of society. So that's one way we try to be proactive. Also, please engage with our social medias. We're at Trans Lifeline on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We try to share resources that also are a mental health resource for the community. And I think those are the ways that we really take a proactive approach to mental health as well. And even though Trans Lifeline has these microgrant programs, Bree further explained how technology is essential both in providing a well of support and information to trans people both in its databases and future plans to increase suicide prevention help accessibility. We keep the only database of what it takes to legally change your name and gender for every county in the United States, because in many states, those requirements vary county to county. So that's a digital resource that's widely accessible 
on our website in the microgrants section. Another thing we do in terms of helping make digital resources more accessible is when people call us, it's not uncommon that we will make a referral to local services, digital or local support group. You know, not all of the time. It depends on the call, but it's something that we certainly do engage in. And then when we're looking to the future, to our five-year plan or so, we're really hoping to create more diverse technology to make our services more accessible. So, you know, being able to offer things like tech support or chat support for trans people who might not be comfortable calling or whose calls might be monitored by their parents if they're young. So, Really, when I think about the future of Trans Lifeline, I think that technology is going to be a huge part of our growth. Trans Lifeline depends so much on technology that its whole workforce and volunteer base has been remote since its founding in 2014. Being remote, Bree said, has made it accessible for both Trans Lifeline's staff and volunteers to help the organization's mission. We're actually a pretty technologically innovative organization as well. We have always been a remote organization and we use technology so people can log in wherever they are from the comfort of their home to help take calls. And so if you're listening to this and you are trans and you're thinking about getting involved, it's really easy because of the technology we use. You don't have to be in a particular city. We have never had call centers or anything like that. So please check out the volunteer opportunities we have as well. Even with the help that Trans Lifeline has to support the trans community, especially those struggling with suicidal thoughts, it's overall critical to prevent these factors that lead to trans suicide and ideation in the first place. Bree touched upon how we can all be doing a part to be effective allies of trans people, both at a structural, governmental level and as individuals. I think for government officials, it's so important to be supportive of trans people vocally. We know, for example, when the Department of Health and Human Services under the Trump administration recently rolled back health care protections for trans people in June, and we saw our call rates absolutely skyrocket in response to that. And so, you know, transphobic policies targeting trans peoples is really bad for our mental health. I'd say conversely, you know, creating policies that are affirming of trans people is good for us. It helps us think that we live in a society that wants to make our lives possible, that wants us around. Going down to the individual level, I think there are so many ways to get involved. If you aren't trans, Supporting trans-led organizations, directly supporting trans people through financial contributions can be incredibly powerful. The vast majority, for example, of our funding comes from small gifts under $1,000. And really, there's so much economic inequality for trans people that giving that type of material support can be really powerful. And then on a more basic level, just, you know, making sure that you're being respectful and lifting up the trans people in your life, not just for being trans, but for their other strengths and wonderful attributes, trying to really do the hard and difficult work of unpacking transphobia. Don't tolerate things like transphobic jokes or jokes about people looking like a different gender, anything like that. And then really investing and following trans thinkers. There are so many wonderful trans authors, trans journalists, 
who are doing really nuanced work and who are often doing work targeted more towards cis audiences that are meant to be explanatory. And really, by educating yourself, by listening to trans people, can be a really helpful jumping off point for making those material interventions and how you treat your trans friends and how you interact with the world around you when you also perhaps like intervene and don't tolerate transphobia that's being spoken or coming up around you. I think all of those are such important ways to be involved. And while we all work toward dismantling transphobia and uplifting trans and non-binary people, Brie also had a parting message for trans people out there. You know, to any trans person listening here, I really want you to know that you aren't alone. None of us have to go through this alone. There is so much possibility to be trans and to really form a life that isn't based solely around necessarily being trans. There are so many ways, different interests, different ways that you can really excel, that you're wanted, that our community has always survived by supporting one another, by uplifting one another, and that connecting to a trans community can be really powerful if you feel like it's accessible. Finding some trans community, whether it's online or via support groups or whatever it may be, can be really healing and really powerful. And also, please know that we're here for you and that if you ever need us, please reach out. Our number is 877-565-8860. Again, that's 877-565-8860. And you can reach out and you can speak to another trans person who's going to get it and who's not going to pathologize you or do a risk assessment or anything like that, but it's really there to support you in whatever you're going through. To learn more about Trans Lifeline, go to translifeline.org. You can also find them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The Department of Health and Human Services, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, or SAMHSA, also has many other resources for suicide prevention. For the broader LGBTQ community, you can contact Trevor Lifeline at 1-866-488-6386. For those generally grappling with suicidal thoughts, there's also the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Although this month is Suicide Prevention Month, we should always try to prevent suicide, especially these days with COVID-19 causing emotional, economic, and medical distress Remember to be kind to yourself and to others. Thank you for tuning into HealthCast. We'll see you next time. HealthCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentciomedia.com podcasts. If you liked what you heard, let us know by leaving a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. HealthCast is produced by Amy Kluber, Hosted by Melissa Harris, Adam Patterson, and Faith Ryan. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact us at sponsor at governmentcio.com.